Professor Geoffrey Richards delves into the case of another radio detective. We present The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Dramatized for radio by Bill Morrison. With Ed Bishop as Philip Marlowe and Robert Beatty as General Sternwood. The Big Sleep. The term private eye summons immediately to mind two iconic American figures, Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade and Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. Two characters similar enough to have been played by a single legendary actor, Humphrey Bogart. Their creators had certain similarities too. Both had served in the army in World War I. Both were alcoholics, and both learned their craft writing hard-boiled detective fiction for Black Mask magazine. But there were significant differences. Hammett was a poor-born, self-educated southerner who'd worked as a Pinkerton detective. Chandler, although born in Chicago, was raised in England and educated at Dulwich College before returning to the United States and embarking on a career as an oil company executive, a job he came to hate and from which he was sacked in 1932, taking up writing as a means of earning a living. The critic Philip French considers the English public school background a formative factor in Chandler's creative life. I think the English background of Chandler was important. Although he was born in Chicago, he came at an early age when his, his parents' marriage broke up. He was brought by his mother to London. He went to Dulwich College. This was the same school as um, P.G. Woodhouse and C.S. Forrester. And it's always struck me as really significant that all three writers finished up in American exile, that all of them created different versions of the English gentleman, Bertie Wooster in the case of Wood Woodhouse, Horatio Hornblower for Forrester and Marlowe, of course, for, uh, for Chandler. And that all three of these characters sort of took on a life of their own, independent of the, their creators. Tell me about yourself, Mr. Marlowe. I suppose I have the right to ask. Sure. <clears throat> well, there's not much to tell. I'm 33 years old, went to college once, and can still speak English if there's any demand for it. I worked for the district attorney as an investigator once, which is how you reached me. I'm unmarried because I don't like policemen's wives. You didn't like working for the district attorney? I was fired. Huh. I test very high on insubordination, General. It is perhaps no coincidence that Chandler's great hero, Philip Marlowe, Marlowe with an E, shares the surname of Christopher Marlowe, one of the great Elizabethan contemporaries of Edward Allen, the founder of Dulwich College. Some of Chandler's earliest admirers were British. W.H. Auden called his novels works of art, and Evelyn Waugh said Chandler was the best writer in America. What were Chandler's qualities as a writer? Philip French. Uh, he had a tremendous wit. He had a, a, a vivid ability to uh, make sort of buildings come alive, a certain sense of the architecture of Los Angeles and of the weather. There was a rough desert wind blowing into Los Angeles that evening. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair, make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends up in a fight. And meek little housewives feel the edge of a carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen when the Santa Ana blows in from the desert. 
Van Heflin as Marlowe in a 1947 dramatisation of Chandler's story, Red Wind. He has a great sense of character, a great sense of simile. He was a man who was trained in an English literary school, but also in the literary world, the, and he, well, he began his, of his life in the literary world of Edwardian England as a writer for, for, for literary magazines. So he had a sense of style, but he put that away to create a new style in America from the demotic, but he was an outsider, a literary outsider looking at the language, creating a new language of sort of uh, some kind of rhetoric. He was able to make the wisecrack work dramatically. But he had also this great sense of character, of observation, of creating people through the language they spoke and everything, because you have at the centre of it uh, one of the great literary creations, I think, uh, sort of a, a legendary person in the figure of Philip Marlowe. What kind of character was Marlowe? Marlowe was a sort of a modern knight errant, but he was able to sort of to mock this, uh, as Marlowe always mocked himself. But there's a marvellous phrase used by one of, one of the sort of uh, villains in the novels, in the high window, who mocks Marlowe by, by calling him a shop-soiled Galahad. And yet that is uh, a title that uh, Marlowe would have accepted honourably. I mean, there were several places where he, he is defined and self-defined. I mean, at the beginning of uh, his first novel, uh, The Big Sleep, in 1939, Chandler has Marlowe actually describe his own appearance. It was 11 o'clock in the morning in mid-October the sun not shining and a look of rain. I was standing in the hallway of the Sternwood place. Over the entrance doors, which would have let in a troop of elephants, there was a stained glass panel showing a knight in dark armor rescuing a lady who was tied to a tree. She had no clothes on, but she had some very long and convenient hair. He was fiddling with her knots and not getting anywhere. If I lived in this house, I would sooner or later have to climb up there and help him. He didn't seem to be really trying. I waited for the butler to come back. I was wearing my powder blue suit with dark blue shirt, tie and display handkerchief, black brogues, and black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. I was neat, clean, shaved, and sober. I was everything a well-dressed private detective ought to be. I was calling on $4 million. Ed Bishop as Marlowe in the 1977 BBC production of The Big Sleep. He is also characterised uh, philosophically in the essay uh, The Simple Art of Murder by, by Chandler himself, uh, which introduced into the language the phrase, down these mean streets a man must go, a man of honour. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful piece of writing. In everything that can be called art, there is a quality of redemption. It may be pure tragedy, if it is high tragedy. And it may be pity and irony, and it may be the raucous laughter of the strong man. But down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world, and a good enough man for any world. I do not care much about his private life. He is neither a eunuch nor a satyr. I think he might seduce a duchess, and I am quite sure he would not spoil a virgin. If he is a man of honor in one thing, he is that in all things.
He is a relatively poor man, or he would not be a detective at all. He is a common man, or he could not go among common people. He has a sense of character, or he would not know his job. He will take no man's money dishonestly, and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. He is a lonely man, and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man, or be very sorry that you ever saw him. He talks as the man of his age talks, that is, with rude wit, a lively sense of the grotesque, a disgust for sham, and a contempt for pettiness. Over the years, there have been many Philip Marlowe's in the cinema. For Chandler fans, the greatest of them have been Dick Powell and Humphrey Bogart in the 1940s, and Robert Mitchum in the 1970s. The success of the 1940s film versions inspired a popular radio series. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe made its debut on American radio in 1947 with Oscar-winning actor Van Heflin as Marlowe. But between 1948 and 1951, the role was played by B picture star Gerald Moore. Van Heflin had to stop appearing on radio because he was under contract to MGM. Nobody could be physically less like Marlowe, and he, and he also had a voice that was probably a little too distinctive for people to put the character of Van Heflin out of their minds. Gerald Moore was the actor that um, was most liked uh, among, the, among the broadcasters by, by Chandler. He, in fact, uh, he wrote in a letter to a friend in 1950, he said, a voice like Gerald Moore's uh, gave you a personality which you could fill out according to your fancy, but television shoves the whole thing right down your throat and if the actor says one flat, stupid, trashy line it stands out like a lighthouse in a storm Hello, Marlowe I've been waiting for you too long, kid Well, I would have baked a little cake if I knew I was going to have this much time Where's well, only parts, Thurman? He's under arrest, kid We found his wife's body He's under arrest for murder You know what else, kid? No, what else, kid? So are you as Lieutenant Sturman moved toward me, he curled the thick fingers of his left hand into a fist. I braced myself, but the blow never came. <laughs> Instead, he shoved his face up close to mine, and his mouth twisted into a one-sided grin that was as full of fun as a set of thumb screws. Well, you finally came through for me, didn't you, kid? I don't know what you're talking about. Been waiting a long, long time for you to pull something in my town, Marlowe, where you can't run back across the line and hide behind the skirts of your cop friends over in L.A. You're having yourself a pipe dream, Sturman. Lieutenant Sturman! And don't forget it. Real sorry, officer. Now, do you mind explaining what this is all about? That's one of my rights as a citizen, you know, even in Bay City. As far as I'm concerned, killers ain't got any rights. Now tell me you had nothing to do with Grace Parcher's murder, so I can tell you why you're a stinking liar, private detective. I suppose private detectives have no rights either, huh? None. Uh, we found the girl's body in a car parked at a vacant lot, and somebody overlooked a couple of fingerprints, which I'm going to match up with yours, Marlowe. How come you're so sure? Because we pulled Ernie Parch out of the movies five minutes after we found his wife. And jailbirds sing in Bay City, Marlowe. We don't horse around with him. Come on, let's go. Wait a minute. Boy, you pushed too far on the wrong track. There's an angle here you ought to know about. Uh, there's always an angle with you, ain't there, bright boy? Yeah, but you're going to like this one. First in that car you're so proud of, you're going to find prints from one Art Manelli. The gambler? That's right. One who stays in operation when everybody else in Bay City is closed up. You better find out whose toes you're stepping on down at City Hall before you... Right out! we got problems in our town, people, but that's not one of them. 
Now, if you've got something intelligent to offer, spill it. Without wisecracks. Although Chandler did not write any of the radio plays, his contract gave him a script veto, and he was regularly consulted by the writers to ensure Chandlerian authenticity. The result was a series that at its peak drew 10 million listeners a week. But it was the BBC in London who were to produce the definitive radio versions of Chandler's six canonical novels. Five of them were broadcast in 1977-78, followed ten years later by Farewell, My Lovely, the rights to which had previously been unavailable due to the 1975 film version. The producer of all six was John Tidyman. The books were dramatised by Bill Morrison, and Philip Marlowe was played by Ed Bishop. Why did John Tidyman decide to undertake the project? No, I've always been a great Chandler fan, and uh, the suggestion came from Bill Morrison to do them. I thought, well, I didn't be able to get the rights, because uh, a lot of the rights were tied up, film companies and so on, but the rights were available. And then Bill found the right way of doing them, which, of course, was through the first-person narrator. Thank heaven, you know, you can keep the narrator there, because they're told in the first person. Uh, so you could retain the Chandler style, just as if you're doing Jane Austen on radio. It's very nice to keep Jane Austen as a narrator, uh, so that you retain that element. And we were very lucky that we were able to do them all as 90-minute uh, plays. And um, they were widely broadcast in America. 750 stations took them across America. And, I, I mean, I was absolutely horrified when I went to Los Angeles and met up with the, uh, the head of a station there and said, oh, you're John Tyler from the BBC. Oh, we love your Chandlers. Uh, oh, my goodness, here they are being heard in America because there are quite a lot of English actors in them. And I was a bit worried about the accent. I was a bit worried about the, the Anglo approach. And she said, no, no, they're just right because, you see, and I'd not thought this, Chandler rarely sits in the middle of the Atlantic. So they're not really American. Chandler's novels were famously complex. The stories told that when Howard Hawks was filming The Big Sleep, neither he nor any of the crew could figure out who killed the chauffeur. They cabled Chandler, and he couldn't remember either. For the record, the chauffeur committed suicide. But given the complexity, how difficult did Bill Morrison find the novels to adapt? Well, look at the positive things first. The first absolute positive thing is that it's told in the first person, which lends itself to radio immediately. And if you have a first-person narrative, it allows you, given that you have such splendid language anyway, but it does allow you to bridge through things, because Marlowe can tell you the story. He can tell you what is happening as it is happening. This is a, a real bonus, and also makes it very good radio. It gives it immediacy, it gives it a coherence, which otherwise, with that many characters, you should say, it could be very conflicting for the, for the audience, but they always have a centre that you relate to. Um, that's the very positive thing about it. The downside, the, the real difficulty in it is the plots have got holes all over them and the complexity of them. Uh, something like The Little Sister, which is the most extraordinarily complicated. You can unravel it, but dear me, it is difficult. How did Ed Bishop feel about taking on a role associated in the public mind with Humphrey Bogart and Dick Powell? No hesitation whatsoever. I think you've got to be a little arrogant to be an actor. I think you, you can't worry about things like that. And uh, I must say, uh, where was it in the listener of uh, some prestigious uh, publication said that the Marlowe, the, the BBC did, uh, me, <laughs> uh, was better than Bogart in the kind of, or just the, 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 the sound thing conveyed more of that character. 
the isolation of the man. I think you can do that with the silences in radio a lot better than something visual, which must always be on the move. I'm now at a 40-year career, you know, and I, I can count on my fingers, certainly. Maybe I wouldn't even use them all up, I don't know. Uh, the jobs that were rewarding and challenging and stimulating, interesting, and you, make, you felt you made a contribution, you had a good product to start with, and you made a contribution. And certainly Marlowe and uh, those six 90-minute uh, episodes would be certainly in a place of honor there because I was very proud of the work I did there and my contribution to that work. The room was full of smoke. It hung in thin lines straight up and down like a curtain of beads. I reached up to feel my throat. My throat was sore, but the fingers feeling it didn't feel a thing. They might as well have been a bunch of bananas. Mail-order fingers. I took hold of the sheet and wiped the sweat off my face with the fingers the correspondence school had sent me. Box 2,468,924, Cedar City, Iowa. Nuts. Completely nuts. In a hospital. The world outside the open windows was a black world. Why did the smoke hang motionless if the window was open behind the bars, huh? I got up and started to walk, wobbling like a drunk. Given that the plays were being done in Britain, how did they succeed in achieving an authentic American atmosphere? Bill Morrison. Well, you, you have a brilliant director. Um, then you get some very good actors, of which, fortunately, there are some very good. I mean, Ed Bishop turned out to be an inspired uh, Marlowe, and that was, that was just tremendous. Um, couldn't credit him enough. Um, as far as that, that goes. Part of the inspiration of that, I mean, this is John Tideman we're talking about, who was the director. And uh, John and I had always had a very good relationship anyway, uh, which is really based upon the fact that if I sort of skate over something in a, in a piece of work, and you kind of know yourself that it's a little flaky, you know, and you haven't quite cracked it or whatever, John will say, um, and you know you're found out. He doesn't have to say anything else. This is a relationship This works extremely well. But I think the inspired idea was to do them uh, all together. We didn't do all, all six because um, of problems over the rights of Farewell, My Lovely. But um, we had our Marlowe. Uh, we booked a studio, I think, for a fortnight and assembled uh, a kind of company of actors. Um who played different roles in different books and so on and sometimes other actors came in just for one small cameo or whatever but we basically worked as a group the cops would be playing cops one week and then they'd be uh, Weepy Moyer or Chicago Red Hot the next you see so there was this uh, mixing it up and we had uh, Don Fellows wonderful American actor he did all the announcing Los Angeles 1947 whatever so your sound from that point of view, it was authentic. And it was great fun because you could then develop a, a rapport uh, with, with these people because you knew their timing. And uh, we had a, quite a lot of that going for us in the Marlowe's. Bill sat down and he, he adapted the things and he wrote a lot of dialogue himself. And he was there at every episode. So if we had to have a rewrite, Bill was there and he would come up with nuggets. Uh, it was one... Uh, I was calling on this woman... And this guy was a sort of gigolo. And 
he had to go for he was he, he was going to go for his Roscoe, you see. And <laughs> Marlowe said, "Don't do it, pal," or something like that. And I said, "Well, how are we going to convey that he's going to uh, draw a gun?" And, and Bill kicked that around for a minute. And he says, uh, "Okay, this is what you say." He says, I'm paraphrasing now, but it was so pithy. He says, uh, "Don't do it, pal." He says, "Before you have that." rod out of your Cesar Romero shirt, I'll drill you. <laughs> so that Cesar Romero shirt was a beautiful image for the for the viewer. And they could just see, see that, you know, the fluffy shirt, the guy going in for it. Don't do it. You know, wonderful stuff. But he was there for every episode. It was wonderful. Vanier was the Latin lover type. He and Lois Magic lay out by the pool with the scotch bottle and the ice bucket handy. From 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class. From ten feet away, she looked like something made up to be seen from thirty feet away. Relax, Heathcliff. Hey, go find Kathy. Heathcliff! Heathcliff! Come here at once! <laughs> he likes the man. I like what I see, too. Who the hell are you? What do you mean, busting in here? Weren't you told there was no one in? Yeah, but I didn't believe it. Are you, uh, Mr. Morney? <laughs> no, I'm, uh, just a friend. Sit down and rest your sex appeal, Lou. Who are you, handsome? Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective. Big, aren't you? <laughs> Too much for you to handle, I guess, Lou. All right, Marlowe. Get it over with, whatever it is. Uh, do I talk to her, or do I talk to you and have you put it in English, huh? <laughs> what do you want? You uh, shared an apartment once with a girl called Linda Conquest. I'm looking for her. I don't think I've seen her in six months. She got married. <laughs> What do you want to know for, big boy? Just a private inquiry. About what? A confidential matter. And that gives you the right to bust in here? So, uh, you don't know where she is, Mrs. Morris. She just said so. She said she didn't think she'd seen her. Who's looking for her? Her folks. Guess again. She doesn't have any folks. Well, you must know her pretty well, if you know that. You got your answer. You're not wanted here. I think you can tell me where she is, Mrs. Morney, if you want to. How are you going to make me want to? Hmm? Well, with all these people around, how can I? <laughs> well, that's a thought. Get out, mug, while you can still walk. Where's your refinement? And don't tell me you wear a gun under your Cesar Romero outfit. Or have you got an itch? Don't write me off too quick. I'd plug you as soon as I'd strike a match. And I'd fix it afterwards. Don't get so hostile, darling. Tell him to go. It would take you a week to get a gat out from under that shirt if you have one. I'll come back when you're ready. So long, Heathcliff. For Philip French, the radio adaptations worked well. I think that the Bill, Bill Morrison made a very good job of the adaptations. He uses a lot of the dialogue, often quite carefully rearranged. But I think that being an Irishman, in fact, not, not being English, he doesn't have to strain to get that effect. He has also, I mean, sort of, it brings out, I, I think, the, the production, just how well suited Marlowe is to radio, because they're much shorter. The American versions, radio versions of the... 1940s uh, were all sort of um, apocryphal and canonical Marlowe stories. I mean, these are all, I mean, all the best novels uh, treated with a great deal of reverence here at an, an hour and a half each. And they show you just why uh, Chandler preferred uh, radio to television. He thought that television was a medium for B-movers, sort of um, run by people with no taste at all. And although he didn't much care for the people running radio in America, he, he thought it a marvellous medium, one that left the imagination free. 
Raymond Chandler died in 1959, but Philip Marlowe lives on in the film performances of Bogart, Powell and Mitchum and in the radio versions with Van Heflin, Gerald Moore and Ed Bishop. What explains his enduring appeal? Bill Morrison, Ed Bishop and Philip French. Marlowe is, is uh, the knight in rather dim armour in a way. There is a very battered sense of chivalry there. And Chandler went to Dulwich College. The headmaster there had a very, very visionary idea of what made a gentleman, a moral sense. And that's the distinctive thing, I think, about Philip Marlowe, that there is a very strong moral centre to him. I think, personally, that it is his uh, solitude. He's a man who works outside the normal constraints. He's a free agent. He has his own philosophy. He goes his own way. You know, I mean, that cliche, the man must walk down these mean streets who is not himself mean. And I think we all kind of envy that. I think we, we identify with it. I mean, from Clint Eastwood to Rambo, I mean, they're guys who go their own way. Most of us are locked into a furrow, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think that's the initial appeal is here's a guy who makes his own rules. You trust the man. There was something, you know, nostalgic about our attitude, which is why I think uh, Marlowe works best in period, because he represents certain values that people feel today have been lost, and they may not be easily recovered. We can sort of find them and uh, respect them and hope that someday they might return. But we would now feel that perhaps life is too complicated now that the corruption with which Chandler was obsessed, that this has finally sort of uh, taken over the world. What did it matter where you lay once you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me? I was part of the nastiness now, but the old man didn't have to be. He could lie quiet in his canopy bed with his bloodless hands folded on the sheet, waiting. His heart was a brief, uncertain murmur. His thoughts were as gray as ashes. And in a little while, he too, like Rusty Regan, would be sleeping the big sleep. The double scotches weren't doing me any good. The headlines said a war was coming. Civilization was being threatened once again. I had more scotch. All it did was make me think of Silverwig, and I never saw her again. In Bill Morrison's radio adaptation of Raymond Chandler's novel, The Big Sleep, Ed Bishop played the part of Philip Marlowe, and Robert Beatty that of General Sternwood. Vivian was played by Diana Olson. Carmen Liza Ross. Music consultant, Adrian Edwards. The play was directed by John Tideman. The Radio Detectives was written and presented by Professor Geoffrey Richards. The reading was by Toby Longworth and the producer, Liz Anstey. <laughs>